Hey everybody, it's Dr. Joe Camerata here. And before we get into the podcast, I just had one quick ask. And that is if you enjoy our podcast, go ahead and take one second to rate our show five stars. It would mean the world to me and it would really help to get the word out to the rest of the people that we are trying to reach. I hope you enjoy the podcast and I thank you so much. What is up everybody? This is Dr. Joe Camerata with Across the Continuum. We're here on the podcast and I have a very special return guest, Daniel Arbilla. Are, are you returning or was it, I posted- I'll claim that. Yeah, because you've been on our podcast by me being on your podcast and me posting it on my podcast. So I think this by is the first time. Luck. That's right. Yeah. I think this is the first time that you've that you've been on our end of the end of it. So welcome. Uh, can you tell the folks who you are and what is it you do? Yeah. Um, thanks for the, the privilege. I'm loving the podcast and all the work and all the memes on Instagram. So respect. Um, Daniel Arbilla is the name exercise physiology is I was gonna say the game, but that would be too corny. Um, exercise physiologist, my understanding is it's similar to kinesiology in Canada, definitely not kinesiology in Australia. That's a woo woo kind of weird alternative medicine, um, Reiki style stuff. So the idea is we go through university four years, um, same as physiotherapy four years, end up with a degree that gives us this scope of practice. That's interesting. It's being debated heavily right now against the physiotherapy scope of practice, um, where we basically are the specialists in exercise, where if there's a condition that has, there's an evidence base supporting the use of exercise prescription for medical health conditions, we have the skills and the tool sets to, to prescribe and to offer lifestyle advice and lifestyle counseling. So for the long-term behavior changes, kind of sit towards the um, overqualified personal trainer camp, which I've been called personally before and have shed a tear um, after all the debt from four years of university. Um, so, so we sit in this space and I've kind of gravitated towards a niche area of musculoskeletal pain within now more of the psychologically informed practice. Um, I work with a psychologist at Barrel Psychology, Anthony Berrick. I've learned a ton from him and from mentors in this space, trying to navigate communication skills, interaction skills, and how we can best utilize all of the effects that we can have for the function of helping people in pain, live the life that they want and manage, have the skill sets to manage pain. And you do a great job as far as asking very difficult questions within that space. And I think that that is why we have a very difficult conversation today. And to prepare, to prepare for this, I, I think I sent you like three bullet points that you turned into five pages of notes with, I think six or seven out, outfit, outward facing links for me to read that I didn't read. I looked through them, but I mean, sorry, affiliates. Yeah. I think, I think maybe we'll break this uh, podcast down into six or seven podcasts going from here. But it's so funny that you say that you have been called glorified personal trainers because both CJ and myself get that on our end as well as, you know, doctors of physical therapy, where we aren't actually doing anything in, in person. And so, you know, if you've been following the podcast, you've been following my um, feeling around in the physical therapy space for where to kind of land when it comes to, I guess, my my thoughts on um, what it is that we're supposed to be doing 
Um, and I, I have a note section in my phone where I write down things that pop into my head that some greater power sends zaps into my brain. And, and before I lose it, I, I write it down. And one of those recently was what's the definition of physical therapy? Like what's the definition of a physical therapist and how does that alter what we deliver? Right. Because the, the pushback for what CJ and I deliver and, and what that I'm trying to promote, which is like this strength forward and exercise forward and, and almost leaving everything else behind. Um, how does that definition, whatever it may be, and I don't know what it is, how does that change where do we fit into that delivery and what that delivery is supposed to be? Um, and so the, the personal trainer thing is a funny one because it's, I, I got it as recent as the other day and it's not the first time and I'm sure it's not the last one, but it, it, it almost like begs the question of, well, it's the things that we're doing to patients that make us doctors or make us EPs. Right. And I've never and if you look at like the state, like here in the States, the state practice acts, a lot of them define skilled therapy as like hands-on. And so I guess my holdup is I've never, or at least I don't now define a doctorate level of education as being defined as like the, the stuff we do, but more so the understanding of the complexities of the musculoskeletal system how it interacts with the complexity of the human and, and how that interacts with how both of those complexities interact with the complexity of like exercise. And so it, it's been like, we're at this understanding in this level because we know what not to recommend or what not to do because there's every Tom, Dick and Harry has their two cents about what we should be doing, but they don't, understand the complexities enough to know that those aren't good ideas. And so that was a long-winded intro to what we're going to be talking about. But I think it's the idea of like ethics and moral duty within our career fields. It's, um, first of all, uh, appreciate the fact that you're bringing this conversation up. Um, cause I think I need a highlight from my very biased social media bubble and echo chamber. It is discussed here and there, but to have an open, uh, critical, like questioning, curious discussion in a long form, I think is, is missing. So we need to reflect on who we are. Why did our profession start? What was the function, the purpose of physical therapy? Um, so, so I'm talking as a EP in, in Australia and my the history of my profession has kind of stemmed from physiotherapy um, in a later stage around the, the 90s. So I am basing the kind of history based on Dave Nichols' work and highly recommend Dave Nichols. He's written The End of Physiotherapy is the most controversial book, like with that, that title, um, and Physiotherapy Otherwise. So highly recommend um, where he talks through a critical theorist perspective and a constructivist perspective. So these are philosophical buzzwords. The, the idea is we need to look back into our history to then understand who we are. Although we don't know, um, and we, we make some assumptions or we just go by rules that we were taught at university. Um, so, so I think starting with like, 
who are we and, and what is our role is important. So for from my understanding, physiotherapy came from the need from the public. This was post-war period. This was where citizens uh, were injured from and wounded from war. So they needed a profession that stems from, there was like a bit of overlap with nursing. And then there was a, a group that wanted to be kind of towards a medical doctor um, to, to help out. So they had like a higher ranking in the medical hierarchy. So rather than just being, you know, the, the, the typical scope of practice of nurses, they want a diagnosis. Then there's also overlaps with massage therapy where people before would, and this was uh, over a century ago, would go to a massage professional and you'd walk into their storefront and you, there was no legal way of telling if this storefront was going to be um, a massage therapist, remedial massage therapist uh, treatment or a sex shop. So this was back in like, so I'd highly recommend checking out Dave Nichols work for this, but this is back in the time where massage therapists were like, Hey, we need to differentiate ourselves. We need to uh, show for the safety of the public, for the understanding of the public, we need to show that we have a medical um, authority. So then there's that track towards going towards the more paternalistic, more scientific, more objective, more expert uh, approach to manual therapy, to massage, to physical therapy. Um, I'm trying to highlight like across maybe three or four cultures, many countries and centuries of work in, in this kind of answer. But this is important to know because, I mean, were you taught the history of physical therapy in, in your course? No, but I, I think I am understanding similarly that it was from wartime where there was a need for rehabilitating folks that, that had been there. And, uh, I recall being in Mississippi when I, when I was working down there and doing home health and from my understanding, treating one of the dudes who was like in one of the original like physical therapy groups. I don't know if that's true. Um, but I, I think that we're on the same page as far as the the origin of, of where we all came from. Yeah. yeah. And um, that, that would be obviously dependent on each country and, and jurisdiction. And even for, for you guys, that each state has probably a different history when it comes to physical therapy. Um, so, that, so how might that shape what we do? I think that's important because we we've got assessments, curricula, we've got uh, tests, we've got knowledge, because we can see knowledge as both, yes, data and objective facts, but also social, because we get passed down knowledge. We learn knowledge from people, from humans, from groups, from communities. So we've got this knowledge bank based on our history. And then we can know, okay, this is where we started. Now, where do we want to head towards? Now we can kind of understand why people get so caught up in wanting to preserve this historically important and meaningful idea and brand of physical therapy because it's what they were taught it's what's been passed down it's what kind of gives that value and that professional identity so now we can understand a little bit more okay i understand why it's so hard to change why it's so difficult to progress why it's so hard to adapt to to change and i'm not calling for though i do side with some anarchist kind of viewpoints i'm not calling it a, like burn the whole system down because we need some of this. We, we, we need to work within the healthcare system. We can't just create our own system in, on the side. Um, so this is the historical 
stance, I think just to start off this very complex topic of who we are, what's our role? The, I mean, I definitely want to pull apart. And I think some of the impetus for me, like bringing this up and thinking about it so much is, is the direction of where we're going. And I, I certainly don't mean to be, but I, I'm sure I come off as like an old man shaking his fist at the clouds. But I mean, it seems like in any physical therapy group that, that I'm in, whenever somebody's like, what course should I take? Me being biased and you being biased where we have non-sexy courses that, that we're trying to push. It's always like this, you know, plungering knees 101 or dry needling or, you know, kinesio taping or, or what have you. And, and, uh, it's, and, and I guess my, my trouble that I'm trying to, to reconcile here is, is there any problem with, with those in the current climate with what we know about that sort of care? Um, because I've gotten, I've certainly gotten different feedback, you know, that I, I'm, I've been very vocal and, and well aware of the fact that these things have effects on folks that are positive, right? And I am also aware of the difference between effectiveness and efficaciousness and, and where mechanisms play and if they do play and if, if anybody gives a shit, if they really play a role. Um, but it, it does seem like the hottest things right now are not the things that are what you and I maybe would want to push forward. And is there a problem with that? And is there a need to kind of come back from that? And so maybe if we, um, maybe we should linger on the definition because I feel like I'm, I'm going to careen us off into one direction. I truly don't know. Right. I mean, when I, when I think of physical therapy, it does feel like it's somebody who stretches hamstrings, at least from the outside in, like looking from the outside in, right. If, if you take anybody on the street who hasn't been a physical therapy, like, Oh, those are the people that are on the sidelines that are making sure that the actual like participants in a sport can do that thing. Um, and then for the most part, if you ask somebody who's been in physical therapy, who's not in the career field, they're like, Oh, that's the person that I go to get tens or to get heat or to do, you know, clamshells or, or something like that. And, and I haven't been in the clinic for a long time, but it's, it, I don't know, once I step out of my bubble and once you step out of your bubble, I'm sure it's a very stark difference from what we feel like it should look like. It, it is. It's, I think this question is, can stun a few people because we don't get that time to reflect on what it is that we're meant to be doing. There's the, the assumptions that we get and we get taught and fed these images from looking up. If you Google physical therapist, what kind of images come up in the search results? If you look up Instagram, TikTok, any social media channel, YouTube, what are the most popular content pieces of content and what message do they provide when it comes to physical therapy? And then you ask, <laughs> classic one when you go to any family event and I'm sure they ask you for a massage or they're like, Hey, can you fix this? So they use these terms and it's so coupled and fused with the idea of physical therapy that it's very difficult to uncouple then and to unpack and to question. Um, even amongst clinicians, it's like we, we, we fix people. We, there's an assumption that we need to provide the knowledge. We need to provide the answer. We find out what's wrong with people, first of all. And then we have this metaphorical toolbox and we pull out all the tools that we need 
in order to fix this person's symptoms. And this was in a previous podcast of the idea of works. So we do whatever works and the works is symptom reduction. I think that that's what uh, I guess we can start off and, and build and, and maybe unpack of that, that assumption that, and this is across EPs, exercise physiologists as well, that we provide the fix. We provide the exercise prescription in order to alleviate symptoms or to uh, reduce suffering, we'll say. Yeah, I mean, it, and I've done a whole presentation on the, what does it mean to feel better, right? What what is what is actually happening? And it does come down to like a conversation of contextual effects or or meaning responses or or the placebo effect, whatever you want to call it. And the if we were to remove all of those as well as we possibly could in a controlled environment, what's left? And that's what what works, right? In the in the like the scientific or the classic you know, controlled manner. Uh, and there's not really not a lot of things because, you know, strength training kind of is included in that where it's not like, that's not what is working to do symptom reduction or to, you know, maybe there's a conversation to be had about, you know, inflammatory changes that happen once we do intense workouts, but I, I don't know enough about that conversation to have it, but it is like, once we remove all of the basically reality, somebody's reality and, and perception around what's happening, what's left and, and so it's the the conversation of what works is a tough one because a lot of folks just don't look into it to the point that there's not a lot of self-scrutiny or maybe I'm just being naive and, and assuming for other people, which I, I really don't ever want to do. But uh, there's there's definitely groups that I've run into where folks just aren't aware that um, there's the differences between efficacious and, and effective there's folks that aren't aware of the current, you know, uh, randomized controlled trials or sham studies, or there are folks. And the other group is that there are folks that are aware of that stuff, but they're under the impression that our job is to reduce the suffering um, and the disability of the patients that are in front of us. And as long as that is happening, then basically almost by whatever means, um, and I, I think it's that group that I want to reconcile with because, you know, just recently as last week, I was, I was commenting on somebody's post who, who is in my, you know, is in my tribe and talks about all this, all this stuff that we like to talk about, you know, the, um, these, these sorts of conversations, but he was like, a lot of folks get caught up in this slippery slope idea, but the bottom of that slippery slope is like marshmallows and there's like no big issue at the bottom of the slippery slope, which is, you know, I might be creating this monster under the bed that doesn't exist when it comes to warning people about the nocebo or the kinesiophobia that is produced from these sorts of kind of like gimmicky or um, maybe half-baked ideas about correcting or fixing or, or things like that. And I don't want to be that guy either who it's like, all right, you're just causing this like moral panic in physical therapy or an EP where that doesn't need to be there. And we're keeping folks from feeling better for a longer duration of time, just because we don't want to do these things that really have no negative associated with them whatsoever. So I don't, I don't know where to land there. Yeah. The, the things that come to mind, just, just hearing what you're saying. And, and uh, I resonate with 
the way that certain, uh, I guess, messages are uh, both communicated and interpreted, and and I'm mindful of the word suffering. So I think we can still reduce suffering. It's more what you said was reducing suffering by any means necessary, like whatever works, like anything, like throw the whole thing at the patient, just see what lands. I think that that's so counter to science. It's so counter to an evidence-based approach. I think, so there's, there's like multiple concepts that we're not really taught in a deep and meaningful and, and relevant way. One of them is philosophy of science. Like why, why do we have science? What, what's the purpose of evidence, of evidence in the first place? Um, and I think if, if I had learned that initially, I would not have wasted so much time and so much money over some courses that are just really well marketed to appeal to my vulnerability of not knowing, of being not good enough, or of not having the magic solution. Um, and of instead of just having skill sets to handle uncertainty and complexity and understanding the value of testing theories and trying to scrutinize them so you end up with better theories, instead I got like 10 tools under my toolbox. So that's that's the the, the whatever works part. And then whenever I have a conversation, I don't know about your experience, Joe, with, with clinicians and colleagues, um, first of all, if it's online, that context is hard. It's fucking hard to have like a meaningful conversation um, that's open and vulnerable and honest. And, you know, people are distracted. <laughs> There's other things to do. And, and you never know what's on the other side of the screen. You never know what other priorities they have, you know. Um, and the, the starting framework that I find helpful in re respecting the context is what, what do you mean by works or what's the definition? And this is from the street epistemology framework of what, why, how? So th this is perfect. What is the definition of works? And we're talking about one. And so there's any N of two here, but there's hundreds of thousands, we'll say, of clinicians around the world that have completely different definitions of works. So I think that's important that starting with what is the claim or what, what's the, how are we defining um, works for them? Cause I could say, let's say slippery slope claim. If you keep bagging out manual therapy, you're um, you're not allowing millions of patients the access to the care that they need. Whoa, that's a big claim. Could you, could you unpack? So there's so many different layers to that. Like, so that, that would be, first of all, I would be like, I definitely don't mean that. What's manual therapy? What's the definition of manual therapy? Yeah, I, this is, I mean, this, this has been floating around on Facebook for as long as I've been a physical therapist, right? Is it, is it taking ranges of motion? Is that manual therapy? Is it, you know, trying to reduce swelling? Is it, um, wrapping somebody's knee? Uh, it's. Yeah, I, you know, I, I'm certainly not going to sit here and be like, you're never supposed to put your hands on somebody ever. Right. But I think, I think the question is, when does it, and, and this question like applies to many things. When does it cross that line of being something, right? When does it cross, when does manual therapy cross the line into being something that might not be of high value or I'm putting my air quotes up or, or productive. Right. And it's the same thing of, if we do whatever works, yes, there's, there are some like really close things that are maybe more reasonable when it comes to doing stuff that might not 
be efficacious, but works. And then there are things that go past that line that are kind of cartoonish, right? And so uh, one of the things that I've, I've always said is uh, if somebody believes that I'm going to, if they're going to, if somebody believes that they're going to feel better if I hit them over the head with my shoe, then they probably will. But that is not something that I'm willing to do because it is outlandish and way out there as a straw man, right? If, if we can kind of talk about that and I recognize that, but it does, it, it, I, it represents the position of if, if it doesn't really matter, and I know that this doesn't exactly answer the question of what is manual therapy, but if it doesn't really matter, then where do we draw that line where I don't know where to draw the line for, for manual therapy. To me, it's like, if we're going into something with the intention of reducing symptoms that has to do with applying passive, I don't know, I, you know, it's, and I'm not going to try and sit here and, and philosophically define a, t- a pillar of like the rehab world. But it's a great, uh, yeah. It's um, it, the I think having a thorough assessment and physical exam and palpation, and like that has tremendous value for screening for red flags. Like obviously, um, there's there's we, telehealth has eff- efficacy and effectiveness from what I've come across in the literature as, as almost as much, um, probably not for all contexts and cases and conditions, but very much so for a lot of pain and MSK injuries where we don't need to um, use our hands in order to provide someone a management plan. Um, there's, I think the thought that came up as you were talking was like the, I think m- people forget once you've kind of delved deep into an understanding that pain is a personal, subjective, multifactorial complex linear i'm just throwing all the buzzwords at once that i can think of right now it's fucking complex there's so many things that can influence pain once you know how many different things can influence pain it's like you you can see then through a different lens looking back at your interventions ah okay i can see now because so many different sensory experiences uh communication suggestions expectations of the patient expectations of the clinician environmental factors cultural factors all these things can have such a big influence on someone's symptoms you can then see the interventions as maybe more of that holistic uh, non-specific contextual effect as opposed to a specific effect so there's like a specific ingredient in this technique. And this is the same for a lot of exercise where we see specific versus non-specific effects or specific exercise intervention versus general exercise, where we can be very specific to the, the patient. Absolutely. I think that's, that's what's missing in a lot of these conversations, but to think that the interventions that we have are a panacea or are magical, I think that's maybe more for the function of boosting up our ego maybe more for the function of addressing our own fear, anxieties, concerns, our own uncertainty of, I want to help people. So I've got these interventions that makes me confident. So I'm going to keep adding more interventions to my toolbox. And that makes me more confident. And that's, that's like awesome, bro, sis person, but 
that sounds like a you problem. Yeah. That I, sounds like a something for you, not you're, you're going away from the patient. You're going towards, this is my discomfort. This is my thing. This is my ego. This is what I do. I'm a dry needler. It's what I do. I'm a exercise prescriber. It's like, and, okay. And I, I do think it's important to, to communicate. I feel like there's never ill will from these people, right? There's no malice that's coming from, you know, some people I work for in the past, maybe when they tell me I have to keep people for a certain amount of time before we even think about discharging them. But there's like, I, I, uh, I recognize that there's an environment that I'm not taking into account, which is being in front of somebody or being in a, a certain specific situation that I can't account for when I sit here in my stand here at my standing desk and, and try and work through ideas. Right. And so I, I never want to, uh, commit the fundamental attribution error where I assume somebody's doing something dumb because they're dumb, right? There's somebody's doing something bad because they're bad. Uh, you know, there's a context and an environment in which they're doing that thing because it makes the most sense at that time. But the the conversation feels like it just circles back to like what it is that we're supposed to be doing and 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 who we are. And and I really like personally the idea of you know, being an interactor rather than an operator or being a facilitator in which I guide somebody in a certain direction or I point them in that direction or being, you know, um, was it Alfred to instead of Batman? Um, but I, I still, I still feel at least when I was in the clinic, when the exercise stuff would work, I still feel like I almost won because the thing that I was doing was working, right? And I could, you know, kind of thumb my nose at everybody else who was doing these other things that technically they were working, but also my thing was working and my thing had less interactions and that was better because if we have two things that they both get better, but one has nothing and one has something, then obviously we want to do the something that has nothing. Um, and so I do think that it comes back to that. But for me, it, it definitely feels like the the interactor, I'm sorry, the, the interactor, the facilitator, the Alfred is a better stance to take than, than the other, but how do, how do we like get that across without telling somebody that they have to do less or they have to lean on their education less, or they have to be less in front of that person in their career field, in their job, in the thing that they do every day that they've built a business around that they've maybe defined themselves as like, how do we, how do we communicate that? Does it need to be communicated? Um, uh, in my opinion? Yeah. And, and I, not to continue to monologue, but I don't want to stand here and try and pull like a, a scientific superiority court card either. Cause I haven't read all, all of the science, right. There's people that freak me out that, have huge accounts that are so certain in what they're saying. And it's so opposite to what I say that I get nervous that I freak out. I'm like, I have it all wrong. I I'm wrong. I don't know what I'm doing. These people, they know they've read it all. Um, and so I don't want to stand here and be like, I'm better because I've read science that you haven't. That sucks. Um, but it does come back to like, what is the, what's our, you know, moral, what's the moral duty that we have? What's the ethical responsibility that we have? What's the epistemic responsibility that we have here? And how do you fit that all into a life and a career and a family and everything? Please, I would like your swiftest response to that long statement. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, the starting point would be 
you're right now talking to someone who was a fixer. You're talking to someone who was using exercise to do all the things that I'm literally calling out right now. I think the, the, I was so hung up on wanting to know what was the magic exercise. Cause I wanted to be better than physios because I was an EP. No one knows what the fucking EP is in Australia. Pilates. I don't even know apparently. what an EP is. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Exactly. Um, thanks Joe. Um, so I wanted to differentiate myself and that was my own thing. And it hurt when I was reading research that showed that this is the, the first thing I came to my kind of um, awareness was strength training. You didn't need to be stronger to get rid of pain, to even reduce symptoms. I was like, shit, holy fuck. So I could imagine then if I had a business for 10 years, I had a family, I had a mortgage to pay, I had employees, I had strength in my title, or I had like, you know, get stronger, get pain-free as my tagline. <laughs> I'd be like, damn, the amount of money, the amount of time and effort and energy invested in this idea, that sucks. I think the... So I absolutely validate and can really empathize with people who are uh, in that boat. And it's it's not their fault either. I think that's important, what you mentioned, the attribution um, error of uh, attributing it to the individual. It's there were, it, yes, there is responsibility, but we're all just in a system. We're all just in an ecosystem. If it wasn't for the, the course I took that brought my awareness to the strength not needing uh, like people in pain, not needing to get stronger to get rid of pain. I, I would still be with that belief. It would still be a part of me of who I am. Um, so I think the straight up solution for the, how to help people become aware of it is vulnerability and talking about our own experiences and showing some examples and having that, that openness that it's not their fault. They're just doing the best that they can with the information that they have at the time and the systems that they're within that we're all within that incentivize fixing if our so, salary depends on it that's fucking hard to change yeah so i think that that i think that empathetic um stance is needed that kindness is needed uh, otherwise it can come across and i like that you, you you mentioned it it can come across as like shaming the individual um and we can have both our frustration at the lack of change that pushing shit uphill that that like educators and and a lot of clinicians and a lot of researchers are trying to do to change the systems, to change the approaches that we have in healthcare. That's hard. So we can hold that frustration and also empathize with people who are within these ecosystems, within uh, the, the environments and the context where they just haven't been aware or they've just got so much going for them so much sunk cost it hurts to even think let alone change any behaviors fuck ch behavior change we're in like the thinking stage it hurts to think about the possibility that what they are doing may not be the best solution yeah i mean i i can only imagine my reaction if if so by some turn of events they're like actually lifting weights is I'm, very bad for you like i would probably probably be like nope in one ear out the other um is this is this kind of where like this renaissance ideas comes from is this kind of where it starts to fit in where there's just a system that not only awards the things that maybe we don't like 
um, whether, whether that's insurance based or whether that's algorithmic on social media or whether that is, um, I don't know how we changed like uh, meaning responses or contextual effects, but is this, is that kind of where this idea that you presented here in the, in our 20 page outline, the, the Renaissance idea, can you like run me through that? Cause this is a new one to me. Yeah. So uh, essentially, uh, Dave Nichols in his books goes through four options, I believe, of how we can respond to the changes with evidence, the the pushes towards questioning, criticizing, and seeing what we can do differently to progress forward. So we talked about the history. So we've got the starting point, kind of like so we, we like with patients, you know, you meet them where they're at. So we've met kind of our profession where it was and where it is currently. And then there's different directions. So the the one that uh, I wrote down there is yes, the Renaissance way of revamping shit being like, if we were here to help the public for a specific reason, number one, what's the main problem now? Is it the same as what it was post-war? Because we can see now with prevalence of pain, it's increasing. So it's getting worse. So because of the needs of healthcare at this stage in 2023, what do we need to do to change and update and adapt according to what society needs? That's like the Renaissance period. Now, I think you're nodding your head and I'm like, this is common sense, but I think both of us, we're in our bubble. So I need to step out of my bubble and maybe even our bubble. I could be, could be wrong, but like our kind of, kind of like nodding in agreement, of course, we're going to update. Of course, we're going to change according to what the public needs, what society needs, what healthcare needs, because that's why we got in here in the first place. The thing that helps, I think, is ethics and morals and ethical healthcare principles. So I think starting with that might be helpful because I recognize that us nodding in agreement here may not be the same as if we were having a conversation with an, another EP, another physio. What, what, what are your thoughts there? And hopefully I outline like the Renaissance. Yeah, no, it's, it's, um, it, uh, I don't know if I've ever like defined my ethics or morals. I don't know if I've, I mean, I feel like I know my values. I don't know if I could say them on demand right now. I feel like I, if I were to see something that went against my, my ethical norms as a, as my own physical therapist, I'd probably feel uneasy or I'd be able to spot it, but I don't know if I could sit here and say, I have my own definition and I don't know if I can ask anybody else for that. I do. I agree. I do think that there, there's a place for them to play. And I feel like it again comes back to like, what is it that we're supposed to doing? to be doing. And I feel like that is again, different from each and every person that we ask. Um, can you ask me again, the question? Cause I feel like I, I don't have it. Maybe we can start with, uh, that the ethics and morals, like if, if you were to start with what are, I was going to say physical therapy ethics, cause we would EPs and, and healthcare professionals, we, have a code of conduct. So this is ethics. So ethics would be defined as external sources of uh, what is right and wrong or what we should and shouldn't do like a code of conduct rules. 
And then morals are more of a, I guess, individual, like our own ideas of our values and what is right and what is wrong. So maybe starting with sure. what you've heard from ethics, from ethical, what is ethical healthcare? And I well, I mean, when you put it that ideas. way, I'm like, all right. I mean, there are, there are, um, you know, whatever the, uh, their scope of practices when it comes to states or within uh, certain career fields, there's, you know, we have to take ethical sort of continuing at every, every two years. Um, there's the patient. I, I can't, I think they might be patient, not commandments, but, um, uh, patient rights. I don't know, man. I, I you know, I know yeah. that we want patient autonomy. We want all this, all this good stuff. So uh, when you put it that way, I feel dumb for not being like, I don't have any ethics. Like I do have ethics. Like I definitely know that those come down from that. Um, but when I think of ethical healthcare, yeah, it's, it's this, you know, tropes like do no harm and, and give patient autonomy and, and make sure that we're not doing things that, that are unnecessary or appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. So the autonomy, so providing the patient, the choice where applicable. So like, um, I'm biased and, and more so in the private practice camp where I don't see people who are debilitated and don't have any, um, I guess capacity to make decisions in a, I'm thinking hospital setting that would kind of change. And so, you know, surgeons and, and people in, in emergency situations, emergency medical situations would have, um, uh, that same principle can look completely different in their context, but yes, autonomy is that first bit. And then the, the buzzwords, non-maleficence, which is do no harm. And then we can also have another podcast. This is fun of harm. What's harm. Cause there's some things that maybe in the short term provide full benefit, no harm for some people sometimes, but then in the long term, if they stick to that treatment or they have that treatment continuously, or they maybe take uh, a sticky message from the way that treatment was delivered. So the way that we deliver the treatment that can bring harm in the long term as well. Uh, and this is more like uh, societal costs, healthcare costs, other kind of costs to it. Yeah. Um, so that so autonomy, non-maleficence, that's like ethical healthcare. Can we linger here for a second? Um, when it comes to the stickiness of the message, because personally, I don't know if I've overblown this in my own communications, right? I don't know if people really take this away. Like, I feel like I've read plenty of studies that are like, yes, they do take it away, but I can't name one off the top of my head right now. Like, I'm sure that if I went into my database that I could find them that where it's like, you know, if somebody gets imaging, they're more likely to have surgery because of the way that the image was communicated. And, and, but does that, does that apply to every, well, I know the answer to this already. No, but, but does it apply as like a broad umbrella to communication? Because this was one of the things that I've talked with previous podcasters about was, and, and you and I agree on this when, when folks say, well, as long as the narrative is good, that, that things are okay, that we can do whatever. And and then that brings us right back to that, you know, that cartoonish view of drawing a line and saying anything that passes this line uh, doesn't really count, but it's still within that spectrum of things, um, you know, Reiki comes to mind, where as long as, as long as we're communicating that 
we're not doing anything except for holding our hands over a person and, and not even touching them, that whatever sort of positive or negative outcomes comes from that is their own fault and not mine because I communicated it appropriately. Um, but I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if like the communication aspect, if I have overblown that in my own, in my own, uh, messaging, because it it is like, you know, you hear about nocebo, you hear about kinesiophobia, you look at the long-term implication of these stuff, if people internalize them, and there's always going to be people that internalize them, but is it everybody? And is it, are we, am I in my messaging saying this is dangerous, pandering to a minority, a small minority of people that might hold on to this rather than a majority? And is it, should I be more so focusing on the majority and not the minority? I guess if you had a hundred people and you, in this example, 10 of them would be the minority. So you, you know, that if you were to provide a narrative, those 10 people will have physical costs, will have psychological costs, will have social costs to the narrative. So there's, there's cons to it, but the other 90, yeah, fuck it. Would you just keep doing what you're doing? Classic train track, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or if you just change the narrative, a hundred of those a hundred people will have much less costs. And this is a hypothetical situation here. I think that that just helps, like the thought experiment, to be like, okay, sure. If I, I mean, if I were to play devil's advocate with myself, even if the narrative is great, they can still take away a negative from what you're communicating and and have a negative outcome from that. Um, but that, but if I was to play devil's advocate from that, we can still hedge our bets and be like, let me talk as far away from a nocebo type message as possible. Right. And, you know, there's always going to be a law of unintended consequences where somebody's going to take something and something's going to happen that I didn't intend and intention does matter. Right. Which is why we circle back to like the maliciousness or the, the, the malfeasance there, but surely there's a way to organize our words that is better. And I would say, and I think that you both, we would agree that if a hundred people didn't get better as quickly as they would, but they didn't die from it, an early death and maybe a disabled and, and suffering death, that would be cool. Right. And, it, yeah. and I do think it, I do think partially it is like a speed of improvement that plays into it as well. Like there's a discomfort in providers and of course in patients and myself included, whenever I have a symptom that I want it now and there's a discomfort and, and what we would call like a commission bias when somebody's right in front of you asking for something and you can give them something that will do something right now. There's that foresight almost doesn't exist, which is the same sort of foresight that doesn't exist when I eat two handfuls of M&Ms and still want to lose weight today. Right. It's just like, that's somebody else's problem. That's future Joe's problem. Um, and I can make current context better. And it, it's it's almost like um, an intangible maybe that something bad will happen, right? Yeah, and and if you could reduce that maybe, would you? That's the and I think that's that's the individual kind of trolley, philosophical trolley problem, um, and that that's one layer. I think that's that's important. Like if you can change something, 
why not change it if it's providing, first of all, more honesty, more reliable. Like you don't have to lie or manipulate someone. You can just be honest. So that's an updated narrative. And there's no cons to the other 90 people in here. Now, this is the individual kind of perspective. This And this is also like we're centering our voices. So we don't have a patient here in front of us. And so we need to acknowledge, like you mentioned, the patient has their priors. They have their own experiences. They have their own worldview. They are interpreting our words in their way that that is unique to their context. So we need to adapt according to absolutely what they come in with. But at the same time, we can have choices in how we communicate and what we say so that the narrative can have the, the most benefit and just try to, as much as we can within our power, do no harm with our narrative. Uh, I, I think I would need to point out that that's what everybody's trying to do, I would think, right? And it does come back to my narrative is non-malicious, whatever that may be, right? It's it's probably, hopefully, the best of my understanding of what's happening is what I'm communicating to you, right? In the best way that I can. And um, we've all been in the, in the scenario where we over-educate and it all goes over somebody's head. But it, it I feel like it does come back to that epistemic responsibility where it's like, there needs to be some time spent and that like reading and educating and and pulling ideas out of yourself and, and putting them out in front of you and being like, this is not a good idea, but I don't know how to remedy that. But it ha- it, ha- it has to happen in time that just doesn't exist. I mean, I we've also all been in the situation where we have, hopefully, maybe some of us have like 60 tabs of research papers that we just never read because there's just no time. There's, there's no time. And um, and in a world where something can be good enough and we can just move on to the next person and there's no immediate injury, you know, that sounds good. Right. And I'm, I'm sitting thinking about the idea that I think we haven't yet addressed with the do whatever you want, as long as the narratives, right? So I think, so we've talked about the narrative and I think that's important. And I think that that's kind of, this, we're kind of scaffolding this answer because as hopefully listeners can tell that this is not a, a soundbite, you know, on Instagram reels, this requires a deep and nuanced conversation. It will be. No, I'm just <laughs> uh, trust. Um, so the narrative part, we've got that we've, we're, within our own responsibility. And you mentioned like epistemic responsibility, we're, providing the narrative within our control that is the most honest, up-to-date, reliable as far as we've come across and that hopefully does the least amount of harm. Now, if I provide that narrative that's honest, up-to-date, does the least amount of harm and I hit someone over the head with my shoe, uh, how would you make sense of that? So I think we need this now and maybe new thought experiment in the mix of, are we like, we're, we're not, obviously we're not saying that the intervention is nothing is innocuous. You can do whatever the fuck you want. As long as the narrative, right. I sh- I'm assuming I can swear. <laughs> yeah. Go for it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. What are your thoughts there? Like, 
to to clarify that because I also hear that idea that as long as the narrative is right, you can do whatever you want. Yeah, I feel like I I have swayed away from that uh, recently in the past couple of years. You know, it was like I feel like that was big five years ago or or you know six or seven years ago when I first came out, where it's like we know that this stuff doesn't do that, but we explain it well enough to the person so that it's not a problem. Right. And so that that's how we justify doing these things with that have these short-term benefits that we still get to be the fixer for. Um, but then you, and I feel like I've said this frequently lately, you get those, those patients or those people that they just don't hear it the way that you say it. And, and even, I mean, even when, you give home exercise programs like folks come back doing something totally different. And how does that not apply also to the messaging, right? What's, what's going to stick with them more the you talking about how trigger points aren't really a thing. And, and the needle head is really like a thousand times bigger than the actual, like, you know, motor endpoint and, and how you have trigger points that don't actually hurt, but they're still there. And, and we're just kind of, creating a descending no you know uh inhibitory whatever and they still see a needle go in their muscle twitch and then they feel better like which which part of that is going to stick out more and what are they gonna let's say they go back home and tell their spouse how did it go and they're like stuck a needle in there crush that trigger point and i feel better right rather than being like oh did you know that the ph of the you know the motor endpoint is actually and so that that's kind of where I guess I get hung up with the if the narrative's cool, um, then things are hunky dory. But it's again, it's like I'm sure that there is because I do the same thing. I do the same thing when we talk about strength training, right? Where it's not the strength that is helping; it's the doing of the strength. It's the you know whatever you want to wrap up into that message, and and yet. We put people through strengthening programs, they feel better. And even if you have the same conversation a hundred times, they're like, should I be doing more rotator cuff strengthening for my external? You know what I mean? Like it's there are people that see the light, they see the other side, and that's great. And there's folks that don't. And so then we're just committing the own the the same issue where our narrative's good. And our intentions are good and our understanding of the literature is wherever it is, wherever we last left it. And yet the person still came away with the wrong message. But again, we were like hedging our bets as best as possible. Maybe it's their own fault. Maybe we should start pointing fingers at patients more often. <laughs> yeah, it's it's always the patient's fault. It's never, never right. our fault. Bad patient. Um, the, the analogy that comes to mind to make sense of this for for, for me is like, imagine there's a bathtub and that bathtub represents the person's context and there's a running tap. So for some people, they're not on social media as much as us nerds. So they don't get bombarded with these messages. So that tap is running like really light, like a few drips here and there. Then we've kind of got our bucket of, that will say helpful, um, reliable, um, evidence-based messages and we add our contents into the bathtub here for them. So they've now got a lot more 
within their space and within their context. And because of our therapeutic alliance and the trust that they've had, they have in us and their experiences with their treatment plan, they've got already enough information to take away most of the helpful messages. Maybe not here and there, maybe with the, that tap that was dripping, there's still some mixture from previous experiences, from what their GP told them, from what their friends and family interpret, from what like memory retention. I don't fucking remember what I had for breakfast this morning and it's just two hours ago. So people forget, like that's human. So I think to expect that they're going to take away every single thing that we say and all the helpful stuff. Uh, and then also ironically to assume that we remember everything that we say. <laughs> I think that that's, there's a few assumptions within there. Now, this is someone who doesn't get fed other narratives. Now, let's say another scenario where they're in a gym environment, say group training, CrossFit, they get that tap is pouring. Like there's that taps on full blast with all these other messages from all these other role models and people that they trust and well-intentioned messages that, that, that are filling in this bathtub. There's no, there's almost no space for anything new. So we have our bucket and we're like trying to apply the same strategy that we had to patient A, the first patient. And we try and put our stuff, you know, in this almost overfilled bathtub that number one, it's just going to be diluted. So every message that we say and every kind of experience, it's, it's got to be contextualized for them within their worldview. And so we need to have that expectation that we have certain uh, power, but we might be just a one water drop in the ocean of that person's context. It, it, I think that there is definitely a conversation we had here about where people get their information from too. You know, like if that, if the, maybe the, the, the water that the GP is putting in has food coloring in it, right? Because they're a real doctor. And, uh, ours is the same temperature as all the other water. So, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I, it's always interesting. Uh, a fun experiment is like when you, when you like mention people who you follow to other people in your space and they're like, I don't even know who that is. And you're like, I've based my entire career around the things that this person says. Right. Um, I mean, you're wearing a barbell medicine shirt, right. And I have 10 of them, you know? And so when I talk to people that don't know who they are, I'm just like, wow, it's impressive to say the least. Right. It, you know, uh, but it does play into, does our word have authority? Is this person see us as an authority figure? Um, and, and the, the, the thought that just came to my head is like, maybe the short term stuff makes us more of an authority figure so that they might listen to us more. I don't know. I don't know where that, where that thought goes, but. Yeah, there's, um, th then it goes into if it's, it, and then this conversation gets a little bit deeper with the kind of back to the interventions and whatever works where it's acknowledging our understanding of the evidence based around interventions. What is the function? What is the purpose of this intervention? So then this conversation is, is, more meaningful for me because I don't really care about the interventions at face value. I care about how are you fitting this intervention 
and what does it serve for this person? So are they doing exercise to fuel an eating disorder? Are they doing exercise to get stronger for a competition? Are they doing exercise to get rid of their pain? And that's their only focus. They just want their pain gone. They don't care about anything and they've tried everything. And, they, and so, so those three contexts, that intervention will serve a completely different purpose. And we talk about context, contextual effects. This is part of, of that. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on, on that question when, when having conversations with colleagues that are like, yeah, what, whatever works, it's more about, well, wh why are you doing this intervention for this particular person at this particular time? So at least I can be like, I, I, I'm on face value. I think that, you know, X intervention is shit and low value, but I can at least have a conversation about why you're using it. The reasons behind it. To get them better is probably the explanation. Honestly, you know, like, uh, I feel like that is probably what I'll hear. Like, why are you doing that? Because that's, that's what we're doing here. Right. People come in, they hurt. We got to send them out better than they came in. Right. My mind said, um, what's better. And that's yeah. just I mean, the it, same circles. Like, it's, what, and works. here's the thing. It's a fine question for you and I to, to masturbate over. Right. But for the patient, who cares, you know, and if you and I are going to sit here and be like, it's not about us, it's about the patient, then there, it feels like there's a conversation to have about through their eyes, none of this matters, right? As long as they leave better. And I've, I've had problems with the idea of like, I've written on my, on my desk here of patient autonomy we can, I want to pull that thread, but also of the idea of like reviews of a clinic coming from patients and using those as a way to measure the, the, the clinic itself. Right. Because if, if we want to sit here and be like, yes, we can, we can go back and forth and be like, what does it mean? What's the ontology of physical therapy? Like, what's the, you know, that's fine. Um, but that makes it feel like it's still about us when we're just trying to figure out who's right and who's doing the right treatments, you know? Um, and so I want to, I want to pull on a thread of, of patient autonomy really quick, as quick as we can, because from their point of view, they probably don't give a shit. Um, and I, I've had a recent problem with this and I feel like I'm floating back towards like a paternalistic way of treating simply because, and I don't, I don't recommend that, but simply because they don't know anything, you know, and I don't know how to square that either other than being like, you know, we, there's patient centered, um, there was it, um, uh, you know, patient centered care, but there's uh, shared decision-making, right. But is it really? You know, it's like giving a, what I assume giving a toddler two options that you choose both options are. And it feels like sometimes people are, clinicians are saying, this has worked for them in the past, so I'm going to give it to them now, which seems like a bad idea. But in the grand scheme of things, in this whole conversation that we're having, where it's like, goes back to what are we doing here? 
that might fit where it's like, wow, what an easy way to, to help this person avoid disability, suffering, increase their quality of life. And let me get to the next person who might need my help. Right. Where, where do we go with the funny ideas that patients come in with? Like, what do we do with those? Yeah. It's, um, the, I think starting with shared decision-making, I think it's hard to picture this dichotomy of it's the kind of clinician is the expert and we know what's best for them. And then it's whatever the patient wants. If they want Reiki, fuck it, give them Reiki. There's papers on this. I don't have the references because I'm not Greg Lehman, not that smart, but I have a discussion group and I can filter through and provide those references after. Um, it's more of a two experts in this same space, in this same room, collaborating and actually listening. So for instance, someone comes in and they're like, dry kneeling worked for me. Okay, I, I hear you, Bob, like dry kneeling has worked. Can you tell me a bit more about how it worked and, and how it helped you, how it kind of helped you get back into things in life? Because I, I want to make sure that I'm providing you treatments here that not only work in the short term, because fucking pain is shit, pain's unpleasant as fuck, but also help you in the long term. So already I haven't just been like, okay, Bob said dry needling, so I must get my dry needles out. And, and now I'm just going to talk about how his day was as I prepare the dry needles. So it's a collaboration that we don't get enough examples of. We don't really see it in action as much of one expert with their lived experience that we're honoring and we are honoring their autonomy, just like we would honor the autonomy of a loved one, of a family member. Uh, maybe not, maybe I shouldn't have used that example because I don't like what my mom says sometimes, but like, this is, we're honoring their experience and we've got some evidence. We've got knowledge and expertise and duty of care. We have ethics We're we're trying to do no harm. If they say that they want to be cut open, number one, it's not in our scope of practice, but number two, there's fucking harm with a lot of surgical interventions. So we're going to provide that information and we're going to know that we're trying our intention, our attitude is to provide what's best for them, not for us and to do no harm. So there's that complexity interaction factors where we're actually listening to them. So there is still autonomy in this mix and there is yeah. still expertise as well. Sure. They're an expert in, in their, their own experience for sure. And yeah. do you feel like it, it gets bastardized in the, in the three prints, like the three stool or the three pillar, you know, the, uh, evidence-based practice one. That's the, the one. Yeah. Uh, for fuck's sake. I've yeah. written it off for so long. I can't even remember what, what it's called, you know, and I, I definitely like Eric Mayer's funnel better. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. but it does feel like there's like, and I, uh, I, I don't want to sound like again, a grump or somebody who is like, but they, there's almost no weight to what they're saying as far as understanding the same complexities and, and dictating where care goes. And I don't know how to square that circle because I know if I give them what they're asking for, they're going to improve, right? Because that's how expectations and beliefs work. But at the same time, it, where those same morals, right? Where it's like, that's fine. But 
this is what like you just don't understand it enough to know why that's a bad idea, which is goes back to being like, why we're doctors or, or, you know, whatever level of education where you got that piece of paper. It's like, I understand it more than you. And that's why you're here to see me. And this is what we should do. But if that doesn't fly with them, then you're screwed. <laughs> yeah. And we'll, we'll talk for the, the context of private practice where people can hopefully have some options so I think that's important. Like they don't have to see us. There's a choice there already. There's an autonomy yeah. in that. Um, and acknowledging the complexity and uncertainty that work have interacting factors in here. And we have our ethics and morals and our priors and what we think might be best. And they've got these recommendations from someone they followed on TikTok. And we're like, oh God, what are they what are they doing? I think the the skill sets in this to handle this kind of conversation. Um, ha- if if anyone's ever helped someone with a mental illness, and not to say that these patients have mental illness, there's a, there's a whole kind of rabbit hole of why mental health and physical health is separated, and how society has kind of created a lot of these diagnoses. But acknowledging that, per- people with some form of a delusional disorder the way that you would interact with them is with respect. If they, so I've had, uh, I was in a mental health ward in my final placement of EP. And there was a gentleman that thought that there was a camera in every single room that he walked in. So we would be having a very normal, like relatively society by societal standards, normal conversation about sports and bantering and, and just talking about exercise because he was a former bodybuilder. I'm like, yeah, bro. Do you, do you follow Mike as a challenge? He's like, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. And I'm like, he's a cloud. He's awesome. Is he, is he natty? And then he'd be like talking and then just look in the corner and stare and be like, they're watching. And so, okay. Me knowing what I know, firstly, I, I, I was like, okay, I'm feeling a bit unsure now. The idea of handling that conversation is respecting it. So me going, are you an idiot? There's no fucking camera in the corner. <laughs> that that's not going to be helpful. So this conversation, this skill set of making space for this person's belief that there is a camera in the room, and what and asking them, I acknowledge this belief of yours. What can I do? What do you need? Or how can I help you feel safe in this environment? So when someone comes in with the worst belief, let's say they need to. Uh, They've got all the postural beliefs. They need to uh, have nasal breathing and no mouth breathing. They need to align their rib cage and their diaphragm. They need to make sure that their pelvic tilt is on point, like all the fucking narratives at once. I'd be like, okay, so I'm acknowledging these are your thoughts and these are your beliefs and this is what you've been told. What would you like from me? I've got some ideas, but if you're coming into me with pain, Maybe we can talk about what, what you're doing at the moment and what's working for you. So that sure. conversation is less about combating the beliefs. I think there's room and space and context for that. And I think this is maybe our role zooming out as science communicators, like the great work that you're doing, where we're trying to influence the ecosystem that's out there to an extent with, with our influence. Um, so we can provide better context for people, for the public to disseminate the information. But that's before they've even come into the clinic room. 
when they come into the clinic room, that at least the way the skill sets that I have been training in and I'm still working on is you've got these beliefs and I hear you and I'm listening to you. And so you said that you need to have this trigger port dry needle, then you need to have it released. Is that right, Bob? Yeah, that's right. Okay. And it's worked for you in the past. Cool. Awesome. Um, so, so it's provided some relief. How long did that relief last, Bob? Oh, um, maybe a couple of weeks. Okay. So it's a lot. So that's, that's two weeks. And this, like, I can see the pain is really like in, in your face right now. It really sucks. Okay, cool. So then there's options. So at least we've got a timeline of, okay, in the short term, it's worked in the long term. What's happened, Bob? Now I've got a different conversation to have with this person that's come in with this low value belief. Yep. Yeah. I, I definitely have used, I definitely throw in the phrase, like, don't you think it should have been better by now then sort of thing. If, if it was going to do that, um, as a final, as a final thread to pull on, which is, feels like a rope, honestly, when we're, when we're talking about adjusting beliefs, what is our role in this whole conversation when it applies to other clinicians? Could you tell me more? I know that this do is we, and Do we police each other uh, or do we just let it slide and, and hope that the people that are going to be influenced by what we're saying are influenced by what we're saying without our interaction? Because you and I both love stuff like street epistemology and and we also know about things like the backfire effect and um, tribalism and all of these cool cognitive biases that really get in our way and also how um, tact and rapport can quickly go away when uh, challenging each other, right? And just due to the fact that people are married to these ideas, myself included, right? Now, there's some people like Greg Lehman who will say, you're never going to change somebody else's mind, so don't even bother, right? I've definitely received that from him. He might have changed it since then, but um, where do we wh where do we land? What's what's our role? Do we do we walk into knives and try and change people's minds who aren't trying to change them, or do we just watch watch what's happening and turn towards those folks who are asking us about changing? So there's the individual answer and the societal system answer. Which one would you want me to say? Both. Start with? Uh, let's do like, yeah. Hi, yeah. Let's like, do the individual the, one. The people that can beatbox and talk and rap at the same. No. Um, so the individual, we'll start there. So I think how did how did you change your mind? Because I know about your experience, but it took me like a few years to come across to they call it crossing the chasm and I'm still crossing multiple chasms as we're speaking. But I think I needed time. I needed role models. So I needed to see people that I admired and I was like, okay, this person uh, has similar values, priorities, and, and I look up to them. So I had inspiration. I needed hope. I needed inspiration. I needed people to discuss, to 
debate to argue with that would actually listen to me, not just like palm me off. So I needed spaces, contexts for reflective practice. That was my, that's how I needed to change my mind as an individual from what I recall. Would love to hear your experiences. What what's helped? What helped you change your mind? When it it feels like it was a long time that it didn't happen quickly. Of course, right? You know there were exposures to information like the logic of rehab. I always say was like an original. You know where there was just a lot of authority behind the blogs. They had a lot of they cited a lot of references and made a lot of sense to me at the time. And I was like, I guess this is a thing. And, and, and we juxtapose that against failing theories that just weren't working in the clinic. And it, you know, just at the moment that one thing wasn't working, there was just a better thing. And and that's kind of how belief changes, right? There's, there's a great book um, being wrong where it talks about, there's usually not, a space between two ideologies, right? Is there's an immediate, immediate replacement, immediate replacement of an ideology because that that lack of having it just doesn't jive with the self, whatever that is. But yeah, it was like there was something wrong, and then there was something better that seemed to make sense, and that kind of is where it started, and then it just like continued down that. And, you know, seven years later, I have told Derek Miles five or six times now that he's the whole reason that I'm in this mess, right? From seven years ago. And I still, I was talking to Mark Cardinal the other day. I was like, I can't believe I'm having similar conversations today. And I still don't know the answers to some of the things that I was asking seven years ago. So it took a long time. Yeah. Yeah, seven years. It's a long time. And it, and it started with uh, the spark of having a blog that was through a, a way that was like, okay, this, this looks legit. Wow. So there's that authority you mentioned. There was also repetition. Um, and now new awareness of new ideas that you may not have come across before, I'm thinking. Like these were, these were like unthinkable ideas. So you were exposed to that repeatedly. You had role models in Derek, the bastard that got you in this mess. Jeez, it wasn't for him. Um, so I think that's important. And then back to your question of how do we change minds? I think people need those role models. They need these examples. And then there's also something in there about what qualities you had, Joe, at that time, seven years ago, that kept you on this path. That was, that sparked whether it's curiosity, where it's like willingness to learn, openness to new information. Um, the people around you at that time would likely have, not all of them, but likely facilitated you in this journey initially. Your training history, the fact that you probably have an exercise background, the fact that you are already kind of siding with this. So it, I think that's important to acknowledge that the people around me as well influenced me at that stage when I came across the, you know, strength doesn't, isn't needed. Strength training isn't needed for everyone with pain to get rid of pain. I needed role models. I needed people to look up to, and I needed spaces to argue, to debate, to have conversations with, to try and make sense of these complex topics. If I was isolated 
in a rural town, for instance, and I had no internet access, I'd be fucked. I'd be just doing whatever uni taught me, just getting my pay, pay slip, coming back home to my farm. I don't know. Sounds great. So, <laughs> it does. It's bliss, ignorance. Um, so that's the individual. And even then we got into some of the societal stuff. So the societal stuff is the system. So I always go with, where did this belief come from? And we go, educators. Okay, which educators? Uh, uni. Okay, who, who sets the curricula? Oh, okay. And why do they set this curricula? Why don't they update it? And the answer to these questions, so to the source of the source, the, the real uh, originating source of who decides what is in our curricula? Who decides what is being taught and what isn't being taught. Okay, that's interesting. And what are their incentives? What are their demands? What are their priorities? Who are they trying to help? All these questions get to a much deeper understanding as to the structures and the systems that lead to beliefs. And I don't know all the answers to this. This is just the questions that I have. Yeah. Did I get that sound bite in there somewhere? Of Somewhere <laughs> for sure. Well, I feel like I've, I always go into these hoping I have a, an answer, right? And I just don't, I still don't know. I mean, I know, right. The things that I'll take back to my bubble, you know, that we should be reading every day and questioning ourselves and we should be proving ourselves wrong or trying to, and we should be making sure that we're doing the least amount of, you know, chatter as possible or keeping them in the medical field as little as, as we possibly can. Um, but it doesn't answer the question of what, what do we do as physical therapists? What's our job? Um, what are our morals? You know, how do we spur epistemic responsibility? How do we, I don't know, you know, I, and I, I, it's like, it's like one of these big issues that I just feel like I'll never have the answer to, but it's, I do think that it's helpful because on social media, we have to come off as relatively certain, right. About things. And that in and of itself is problematic because it lends itself to trying to make things maybe sexier than they are. And, and the, the means of making things sexy is to distill them down and, and make certain claims. Um, but I really like once we sit down like this, I just, I, there's a lot of things I don't understand and I don't know, and I don't know, I don't know what to do about. Um, and so I thank you for highlighting. <laughs> thank you for making me feel more uncertain in this already uncertain world. Thank you so much. I think the, the things that come to mind, one is there's an urge for me even now in this conversation to provide an answer, to provide my answer, what I think is a answer. Now, that's a human need. That's a normal physiological, like felt response of I want to help. I want to make sense of this world that does not make sense. And I want to be right. That too. Yes, absolutely. <sighs> I don't know. There's another question in here of when it, like how I got to where I am, where I care more about the questions that people ask than the quote unquote answers that they give. Cause each answer has a context. Each answer has nuances and I value 
personally, the nuanced long form conversation diving into where did this question come from and how can we ask better questions in the starting point? Um, that's, that's where I kind of sit within the uncertainty. And I think the fact that we're acknowledging the uncertainty is value is huge value because we're being honest and that's, there's not enough of that in the social media ecosystem. The algorithm does not reward someone looking at their phone and saying, this is what I don't know. I'm not sure about this. I'm uncertain about this. I'm not quite sure about this. It won't get the likes and the comments and the engagement. So kudos to you for having these brave conversations and um, apologies slash you're welcome. Thank you. For the uncertainty. Yeah. Um, where can people find more from you? All the uncertainty, if that if this just isn't enough for the listeners, Arbilla Exercise Physiology on Instagram is best. And the Knowledge Exchange, the website is tkex.org. And we have a Facebook discussion group with all sources and juicy conversations and lots of debates that I shouldn't have started from back in 2019 and 2020, where I almost ruined the entire group. So highly recommend if anyone's looking for controversy, because I hear people like controversy, check out the Knowledge Exchange discussion group on Facebook. I, I will post all of it in, in the... Uh in the description. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Appreciate you. Keep up the great work. Thank you.